0: Welcome to Attached, a podcast about the loved ones we're attached to and the good, the bad, and the ugly advice about those relationships that maybe we shouldn't be so attached to. We here at Attached want to share ways to enhance your relationships and debunk all of that bad relationship advice using science.
1: Science. Science is good. It is science good. Science is great. It is great.
0: I'm Dr. Patricia Robertson out of the University of Tennessee.
1: I'm Dr. Jacob Priest from the University of Iowa.
0: I'm Dr. Sarah Woods at UT Southwestern Medical Center. Welcome back to Black History Month. Today, Jacob's going to bring us something fun and quasi-interesting. In oh, oh, we've
1: lowered the bar. I appreciate that. I appreciate that bar so I can always jump over it. appreciate jump, it.
0: Jump right over Then in the academic deep dive, we're going to discuss an academic article, racial discrimination, racism-specific support, Mm -hmm. and self-reported health among African-American couples. And then in good or bad advice, we're going to discuss advice from TikTok about racism specifically in the field of therapy. Now, we have a lot of amazing therapists that listen to this and also interact with us on social media. So I wanted to Think of a way to kind of highlight them and do something specific for for them. If you have advice you'd like us to talk about, send it to us. You can email us at attachedpodcast at gmail.com. Tweet us, Facebook us, Instagram us at attachedpodcast. Or go to attachedpodcast.com and send us a message. We are also now on YouTube, believe it or not, folks. So please smash that YouTube subscribe button and follow us there for video versions of each of our Podcasts from season two.
1: But before you get to we see get, our pretty faces.
0: Well, you get to see our faces, that's for sure. Y'all's pretty faces. That's what I meant to say. <laughs>
1: oh, yeah, I think we just got called not pretty, Sarah. No, I don't I know. How low, I lowering that. the said,
0: bar across I the board. Said, <laughs> <laughs> I said y'all's pretty faces. It was a it was a self-deprecating comment you guys. Anyway, but before we get to all that lovely, lovely epic content, how are you guys doing? What's up? What's new? what's happening. What's hip?
1: Well, what's wow. new, what's new for me is, so you all know that there's been changes to the faculty I work with mm. and all that kind of stuff. So as part of that, I somehow ended up teaching a child development class. Oh. Now, <laughs> now I have taken <laughs> child development before, but I've taken it. I, I don't consider myself by any means an expert in child <laughs> development and I feel like I'm drowning
2: <laughs> <like>, Oh, <"No.">
1: sure. <laughs> well, well just because there's so much and like typically when you're teaching this is an undergraduate course I'm teaching like I know what's important and I know what's not important and now I'm like wait well what if I miss this do, do they need to know this dude yeah no. and so it's like second guessing myself every time like I plan something <laughs> oh. and so like it's good because the faculty who was teaching it like gave me access to their materials and syllabus oh, nice. and all that stuff but I still have to adapt it for COVID related policies and it's just mm. like okay I think I'm maybe a day or two ahead of my students in learning about child development which yeah, I sure. feel really bad about but no. you know it's no. just how it is mm-hmm. and when in doubt I just like whole keenan into here and be like cq baby i've got experience <laughs> in child development that's
0: really funny <laughs> living it lifetime
3: living yeah, lifetime.
1: Like,
0: two pieces of advice that well one piece of advice and one idea one this is advice that someone gave me when we were at purdue you know more than they do
1: <laughs> A dean dan dunn yeah yes yeah. he gave that speech uh-huh. every fall
0: semester every fall semester <laughs> And I still think of it, like when I feel like I'm going to doubt good. myself about anything, I'm like, or in terms of teaching, not in terms of like working with colleagues. Um, that's a little arrogant. <laughs> well, well, it does feel very
3: academic, doesn't it? It has a real academia flavor to it. You're smarter than everybody in the room,
0: every single one of you. <laughs> You're right. I meant like when teaching, especially because you can get really anxious in front of people teaching the material, but you do, Jacob, you know more than they do.
1: You got this. Yeah. I know, I know, like a day ahead of the reading. Yeah. Actually, what is that's kind all of, you need. What has kind of saved me is have you seen the Netflix documentary Babies? No. Highly recommend. It's basically like they follow 15 babies over the course of one year, and then they have like experts in different fields come on and talk about it. So I can like either watch those ahead of time or just like, hey, today we're going to watch part of this for
0: class. Oh, no. <laughs> Okay, so no, no, you're so right. They, that is a good teaching technique.
1: They know more than I do. Those That's true. people on That's the Netflix true. documentary <laughs> know a lot more than I do. But,
0: so I mean, a project idea that someone gave, I think all of us maybe a while ago, is create kind of a version of a podcast. So you have them listen to one of the academic deep dive segments or whatever mm-hmm. segments and have them read that article listen to the academic deep dive segment and then like talk about it. And then they have to create their own version of, of that. So then they're, you're, they're learning about peer-reviewed literature, listening to our podcast and, you know, <laughs> applying it.
1: Apply the it. ethics of all of it. I mean, I do shamelessly promote our podcast in all of my classes, which I <laughs> oh, don't know how. Goodness. I don't know how okay that is, but I like introduce myself and I like, this is me, this is me. Oh, and by the way, I have a podcast. You should all listen to it. Jacob, wow. it's not
0: like we're making any money off this, so I'm pretty <laughs> sure true. there's no like. Wait, we aren't. <laughs> <laughs> oh, what? Why,
1: why? What? What? Yeah.
3: yeah. So, uh, Become a member wait. of Patreon. Is this wait. where we plug? <laughs> Like if, are you making money
0: off this podcast and not telling us? Oh, <laughs> Is there something yeah. you want to share with Sarah and
1: I? <laughs> yeah, so I mean, that's just a plug for y'all should join my child development class. You know, come come learn from all of my wisdom about child development. It's great.
0: Yeah, you sold it excellently. You sold it excellently. As Marge <laughs>
3: Simpson once said when she tried to teach piano lessons to make money for her family. I just need to stay one lesson ahead of the kids.
2: <laughs> and that's
3: pretty much been my rule of thumb.
1: <laughs> I love that. I love that.
3: Woods. I have reached a new level of pandemic cleaning as stress relief. Oh. And I've started pulling out everything out of all of the closets and Ooh. you would think that that would feel therapeutic but I realized yeah. yesterday actually I've just made a bigger mess. Um. And I threw away yesterday three so far, three large trash bags of stuff that was hiding in closets. I love that um, feeling. Yeah, it it part of it feels good. Okay. The rest of it feels like a little bit like I'm throwing away like you know, like baby clothes that, why do I have like bins and bins of baby clothes? I've donated what's donatable and then the rest is just like, you know, tattered and then toys that we're never gonna play with again. And I mean, it's good, it needs to be gone and also, it, my house is a disaster. It's just a total disaster. So oh, no. anyways, that's what I've been up to lately is just stripping my family's memories mm. out of the corners <laughs> of the house.
0: And bringing <laughs> when, them when you place it in. like that. Oh, yeah. yeah, that yeah. can be hard. But also, yeah. you know, you're preventing yourself, just think of it you're preventing yourself from becoming a hoarder. Yep. That's, that's a, that's that's a that's good thing. Re- great
1: reframe. Like... <laughs>
3: Did you feel how much I bought into that reframe? No, yeah, you didn't
0: at all. You didn't at (laughs) all. You're like, oh, what? (laughs) Well, good for you. I love cleaning and throwing things out. So I'm glad you're experiencing that. So have either of you ever had back problems? Mm -hmm.
1: Fortunately, no. But that's because I was never athletic. So I didn't (laughs) have to...
3: (laughs) No one Uh, even forced that from you. Like, why?
0: (laughs) Uh, Oh, you weren't athletic, Jacob? That's that's incredible. No no idea. No idea.
1: I mean, like, Um, you look at me and just, like, athlete, right? Athlete, right. That's what you do.
3: People are learning so much about us in just this little introductory
0: segment here. Go on, Patricia. (laughs) Go on. So yesterday, for the first time in my entire life, I completely threw out my back. Oh, no. I know. I couldn't walk. I couldn't Ugh. stand up. I was crawling around the house to get from one room to the other. Oh, no! no. <laughs> it feels much better now. I still have like, can't move quickly at all, but at least I can like stand up like a normal human being. But I was having my oldest daughter I was uh, asking her to walk in front of me and I was like using her as a walker so I can get from one room to another to take the pressure off my back. And she mentioned, we had some friends coming over and she said, mommy, you cannot do this when our friends come (laughs) over. It will be embarrassing. And I was like, well, I hate to break it to you. There's nothing I can do about it. But it was so funny at seven years old. She's already like, "Um, you're gonna gonna embarrass me if you continue this behavior, mom. (laughs) Get your shit together, mom. It, I can't, this can't happen. Together. But it was really scary. I had never experienced oh. like my back not working and like yeah. just pain from having to stand up. Like because Oof. I could stand my legs up, but then my front half would be in the same 90 degree angle. And then to get it completely oh. straight, <laughs> I couldn't really do it. Like without like support, it was scary. It's better now. Thankfully, I was like, oh my gosh, what if this is how it is the rest of my life? I was definitely (laughs) catastrophizing. Catastrophizing. (laughs) I was like, I am never going to be able to walk again. Um, I'm walking today. (laughs) Less than 24 hours later, I'm happy to report.
1: (laughs) Well, I'm improving. (laughs) Patricia, I'll, you know, typically I know that I bring the comedy to this podcast and I know that you just like writhe with hilarity. So, I will reel it back in today for you because, uh-huh. you know, I, I really Jacob. value
3: you. Jacob. That's so nice. Oh, he successfully made it about him. That was really,
0: <laughs> that was really good. My <laughs> immense pain and fear. He made it about you, Jacob. Look at you.
1: I mean, like, isn't this like this is me and this is the two of your lives, right? Like, oh, yes. Mm-hmm. That's, wow. That's uh, for
0: those who can't see, oh, yeah? Jacob made a fist as if he is the son and sarah and i are orbiting planets yeah cats um, are always a good visual medium <laughs> visit our visit our youtube page oh my heavens so anyway hopefully this will continue to improve but currently i'm sitting with a pillow and a heating pad oh. at my back. i took some tylenol and i am functioning as a sitting down human right now so there that is First up, popping culture. We learn about relationships from our friends and our families, but a lot of what we think about love and relationships come from what we see in pop culture. For this segment, we like to take a moment to highlight events in pop culture that influence people's lives and how we view relationships. Jacob, always bring in the knowledge and the heat. What you got for us this week?
1: I know you have all been anticipating the discussion of this season of The Bachelor. And today... (laughs) Yeah. <laughs> and today is your lucky day because we are going mm-hmm. to talk about The Bachelor do, because do, do, do. it's a really great season. And so excited. there's some good takeaways from this season of The Bachelor that I okay. wanted to highlight. So here we go. Let's back up for those of you who need a little bit of background knowledge. So this season's Bachelor is Matt James. And because of COVID, this season of The Bachelor doesn't take, doesn't start out in California. It's all contained in a resort in Pennsylvania, which is really gorgeous, by the way. Matt James is an interesting Bachelor choice because he has never been a part of the Bachelor franchise before. So on the last season of The Bachelorette, he was supposed to be there and he was supposed to be joining Claire Crowley's season. But because of COVID, it got delayed, it got delayed. And then they asked him to be the Bachelor without ever having to be on like on a the previous show. iteration of oh, the franchise, They
3: usually like draw from the prior season. Oh, that's interesting. Yeah, yeah. I don't know why that's interesting. Understand. Why do I? I don't care. Okay, good, good detail. Go on. You're like, so, oh, that's
0: a fact. Okay, interesting.
3: Okay. Right so
1: that's an Im- that's an important context of what I'm going to talk about. Oh, and the second okay. important context is, for the first time in 25 years, 25 seasons, not 25 years. Whoa. um Jesus. Matt? Matt James is the first black bachelor they've had black bachelorettes but never had a black male lead and so you you start off this season and you have all of these crazy entrances and I want to talk about one woman in particular whose name is Brie. also the person I think is probably going to win this season meaning she's going to end up with you heard
0: it here first I mean Uh, that's my pick
1: that's my pick you got to have a pick everybody has a pick At least top three, at least top three. Anyway, so what I really appreciated them modeling on this season because historically the Bachelor and Bachelorette franchise have not handled issues around race and relationships very well at all. Mm. In the past, producers have picked people when the lead has been Black who have posted openly racist comments on like Facebook or Instagram just to kind of stir the pot, which was really unnecessary really, uh, unnecessary and just to cause drama that I don't think that that's something you want to cause drama about anyway what I really liked about this season is they really tried to be intentional about having conversations about what it means to bring these different parts of your identity into a relationship so within the f- I think it's episode 2 Bree and Matt who are both black sit down and have a conversation about representation of love stories in the media have a conversation about pressure that matt has gotten from all sides well you need to make sure that the person you end up with has these characteristics or those characteristics but then they also use this time to navigate and discuss the intersection of their identities in other words Mm. how being you know a black man but also someone who's had access to education also someone who you know like all of these different parts of themselves intersect and really model a way to talk about identities in relationships often when it comes to romantic relationships when you're forming a relationship you're not typically thinking about those types of things especially if the person looks like you acts like you thinks like you but we all bring a diversity of experience and identities to those relationships and starting early and often to develop a discussion around the important parts of identity and how that's gonna inform who we are and how we are in our relationships, I think is really important. So Bree and Matt really illustrated this well, talking about their family of origin experiences, talking about issues surrounding race and gender and the intersection of those things and how it has informed what they want and what they bring to relationships was really well done. So for the most nice. part in Bachelor history, these conversations have been really poorly done. Mm-hmm. But this uh, this season, I thought it was a great example of how when you are dating or starting to meet somebody that you believe could be a partner for the long term, of how to intentionally have those conversations and use that as a continual part of your relationship to check in with each other and to grow and develop. And as those pieces of your identity that might be malleable shift or as you experience them differently having that baseline to continue to have discussions about it and recognizing that there
0: are some pieces of your identity that are malleable but there are others that are not going to be malleable for example race and i was going to say gender but gender is could be malleable gender identity at least but definitely race is not malleable but there are other things that could be very very malleable i
1: like that yeah and so check out if you don't watch anything else Of the Bachelor season. Check out Bree and Matt's conversation because I really think that for the first time, the Bachelor franchise made a great effort to have real and authentic conversations around race, identity, and relationships, which I thought was really cool.
0: Oh, fantastic. Check it out. Check out The Bachelor, that one scene of The Bachelor.
1: (laughs) Uh, I mean, there's great drama over the rest of the season. If you want, I mean, like, come for the good conversation, stay for Queen Victoria because that that woman is drama.
3: Is this a period piece? What
0: is?
1: (laughs) (laughs) This woman's name's Victoria, and she actually says, "No, you refer to me as Queen."
0: Listen, I'm here for it. Yeah,
1: yeah. Yeah. Are you?
0: Now we're gonna move to our academic deep dive segment and talk about a new paper titled, Racial Discrimination, Racism-Specific Support, and Self-Reported Health Among African-American Couples, written by Shardé McNeil-Smith, Dr. Lily Williamson, FISA Branch at the University of Illinois, Urbana-Champaign, and Dr. Frank Fincham at Florida State University. Recently published in the Journal of Social and Personal Relationships, this study examines whether romantic partners influence the impact racial discrimination can have on health outcomes for African-American adults. As we have discussed before unattached racial discrimination is widespread, a frequent stressor for African-Americans, and research has repeatedly established the negative impact of racism on mental and physical health. For example, racial discrimination experienced by African-Americans has been tied to higher levels of psychological distress, depression and anxiety, more chronic pain, Worse cardiovascular health, worse morbidity, so on, so on the list really does go on. But given what we know about the importance of close relationships, it's also possible that the experience of racism may uniquely influence the health of people in romantic relationships. The authors of this study point out that discrimination experienced by a partner may also impact a person's health, not just discrimination that person experiences Directly, They also suggest that romantic partners may be a significant source of support for helping someone cope with discrimination. Indeed, they cite prior research evidence that African Americans in committed relationships actively work together to protect their family from the effects of discrimination. But we don't really know how this process might protect health of these couples. So these authors hypothesize that couples who perceive their partner would be supportive when they discuss racial discrimination may have better health outcomes than those who feel they would not receive that support from their partner. Fascinating research. Sarah, can you help us understand how they did this and more specifically what they found? Yeah, so this
3: team had data from 487 African-American heterosexual couples, which is a ton. They were all residing in the Southeastern United States, and they were part of a preventive intervention to enhance relationship quality for engaged or married African-American couples that was called the Program for Strong African-American Marriages. In order to enroll in that project, the participants had to be at least 21 years old. The data for this study is from the pre-intervention assessment. So these couples have not been through the intervention. It's just their baseline measures. On average, the age for women participating in this project was 38, and it would. The men were on average 40 years old. Okay. Their average length of relationship was almost 11 years. A quarter or more, depending on gender, had a college degree. So, what they were assessing and what you're describing, Patricia, is support from a partner as potentially a way to buffer the impact of racism on health. They measured was racism specific support. So not in general, how supportive or warm or open or dependable do you find your partner, but this is support specific to racism. So what they asked was, if you experienced an act of racism, how likely is it that Mm. talking to your mate would help you feel better? So that is important caveat. And we'll talk about this kind of, as we break this down a little bit more, but they also then assessed the participants general health and then their overall mental health in the past 30 days and their overall physical health in the past 30 days to look at these different ways in which people might report their health outcomes. They controlled for education, given the impact of education and socioeconomic status on health. And then they did an analysis that we've talked about several times on this podcast before, because it's really, really important when we're thinking about how to understand relationships in research. They modeled the impact of wives' own experiences on wives' health, but also Mm -hmm. husbands' experiences on wives' health and the reverse, So, which is really, really important because you're getting what we would call actor effects, my own experiences impacting myself, as well as
0: partner effects, my partner's experiences affecting my health and vice versa. It's a really nice way to try and model statistically that idea of systems theory that not only does my stuff influence me, but also we influence mutually each other's behaviors, thoughts, feelings, and in this case, health as well.
3: Yeah. And as a result, I think their findings are really interesting. Mm. It's a unique way to kind of explore this. So baseline, they found that 88% of husbands and 86% of wives had experienced discrimination at least once in their lifetime. So by far the majority of their sample. And again, at baseline, what they found was that my experience of discrimination is associated with worse health. Also very predictable. We went into this project knowing that. Then when they're testing their hypotheses, again, remembering that they're controlling for education, they're also controlling for the impacts at first of discrimination. So at first we're looking at the impact of racism, specific support on health, controlling for discrimination. So, what they found is that racism specific support in general appears to be good for health. Okay. So, when husbands perceive that they would get racism specific support from their wives, that is associated with better mental and physical health. And the same was true for wives. So, when wives perceived that they would get racism specific support from their husbands, that was associated with better general and mental health for themselves. Mm. What is interesting is that the more husbands perceived that their wives would be supportive of them when they came to them to discuss racial discrimination, the lower the mental health was that their wives reported, which is a really interesting caveat here in terms of the wives' racism-specific support for their husbands is good for their husband's health, but it might be that it has Mm -hmm. a negative impact on the wives' mental health. They don't know exactly why they found that kind of negative impact on wives mental health they have some ideas about that they suggest that it could be that husbands who experienced more racial discrimination might contribute Um, to wives having a really kind of greater mental burden that they have to do a lot of racism specific mm -hmm. support because husbands might be more likely to experience that discrimination they also they also suggested that maybe wives vicariously experience that discrimination in Mm -hmm. a way that's more powerful and intense so that But when their husbands experience discrimination and then they hear about it, it impacts them in a way that's really direct. And so they're not exactly sure, but those are a few things that they suggest. And then they looked at the impact of racism-specific support on the associations between discrimination and health. And this is the piece I think is the most interesting. For wives who perceived low racism-specific support from their husbands, discrimination that they experienced was associated with worse mental health for themselves. So if I Whoa. think I can go to my husband less, if they're gonna be less supportive, specific to that racism, discrimination is associated with worse mental health for myself. Cause you don't but have the support. I don't have the support. Right. But for wives who perceived that their husbands would be high in racism specific support, discrimination and mental health were not associated.
0: Wow. Yeah. Mm.
3: It's really cool. And so the authors talk about the stress buffering effect that this yeah. racism-specific support can have. They also found that husbands' racial discrimination, husbands' experiences of, of racism and discrimination were associated with worse mental health for wives, but only for wives who themselves had low levels of racism-specific support from their husbands, oh. which... Yeah, it's really interesting, which means that wives with high levels of racism specific support from their husbands, that husband's experiences of racial discrimination was not tied to the wife's mental health.
2: Okay. So some really
3: interesting links here about support being a buffer for how discrimination I experience may be associated with my mental health, but also how discrimination you experience yeah. might be tied to my well-being. It's really fascinating. It's certainly impacted by the fact that it's cross-sectional research. They haven't kind of explored these links over time. This is a really new study. They obviously were also recruited for an intervention. So there might be something kind of unique about the sample that's also, of course, heterosexual couples, so kind of limited to these husband-wife pairings. And gender they talk about quite a bit might be kind of part of how this plays out. Mm. But what I think it does a really lovely job of is talking about how being in a supportive romantic relationship can be a protective active resource in the context of racism, it it can buffer against the impact of racial discrimination on health, that that's what they're starting to tease out here, which is so, so beautiful and so lovely. They make a really nice point about that we have a tendency to lean on each other when we feel like our partner is safe and we feel like they're going to offer us what we need, that we want to lean in. And that is especially true for African-American couples experiencing racial discrimination. That is a strength when I lean in towards my partner and I share with you what is stressful for me. And I think you're going to be responsive and supportive about that. That is a huge strength. There's some variation here, of which we talked about in terms of how this might happen for wives, if they're providing that racism specific support, but possibly not able to receive it if their husbands are maybe mm. too overstressed in terms of how it negatively impacts their mental health. So So there's something else maybe unique here gender-wise and kind of the stress burden that certainly more research would be, I mean, super important and really fascinating to kind of tease out how this happens over time and how gender plays into this. But I think what's really cool about this research is also that it's it's not just that support and being protective against this kind of stress but it's also potentially really important and really effective that the support that they are talking about was support that was tailored to this specific stressor it wasn't again in general i think i could rely on my partner if, if i needed right. to it was did i think that they would be there for me during this incredibly painful totally unpredictable but very common experience of racism and that is potentially what really matters when we, when we drill down to say, are you going to be there for me in this really ultimately stressful experience that I'm
0: very likely to have. And that is what's impacting the long-term. Absolutely incredible. Wonderful research. I can't wait to see what else comes out of this team led by Dr. Smith, who is a friend of the pod.
1: Yeah. Badass. Dr. Charde Smith McNeil. Wait, no, McNeil Smith, sorry, Dr. Chardet, McNeil Smith. Oh my gosh,
0: so embarrassing, Jacob.
1: Well, it shouldn't be embarrassing. I've known her, we did all of our graduate training together, and she's amazing. So She is, her research research. is incredible.
0: This is incredible, incredible research, very, very important research. I'm so glad we had a chance to talk about it. Woo-hoo! Boo! Woo hoo yeah! Finally, time for good or bad advice where we talk about pervasive relationship advice in our culture. We hear about relationship advice from our parents, our family, our friends. We see advice about how to be in relationships from movies and TV shows. And we read endless advice spewed at us on all of the social medias, blogs, and those numerous top 10 lists. But a lot of it just isn't actually good for our relationships. This is the part of the show when we use science, mind you, to decide if the advice is good or bad. If you have seen or heard some advice you'd like us to talk about, please send it to us. Email us at attachedpodcast at gmail.com or tweet us, Instagram us, Facebook us at attachedpodcast or go to attachedpodcast.com and send us a message directly. While you're at it, please feel free to like and subscribe to our podcast on your very favorite podcast app. And then, you know, feel free to share it with your loved ones, your colleagues, everybody, all the peoples. Please. So, please. Jacob is making money off this podcast, apparently. <laughs> <laughs> we want to support so him. <laughs> do it. We want to support it rain. <laughs> Jacob on his, and his baby. And his poor child development students. <laughs>
1: <laughs> That's who should really be getting the money from this podcast.
0: <laughs> <laughs> Kickbacks. Kick <clears throat> so we actually have a number of practicing therapists that listen to our pod and interact with us a lot on social media. It's a very very, very enjoyable. Big thank you to all of them. So, I wanted to take this episode during Black History Month and talk about several TikToks from a Black therapist, Derek Horde, at D Horde LMFT on TikTok is his handle, sharing wisdom about racism in therapy and responding to several comments on his original post. So, this is a, a little bit different. It's kind of geared more towards therapists, but I think. Anybody can really benefit from from this advice that Derek shares. So first I'm going to share with you all... Um, And of course, the links to all of these TikToks will be in the podcast notes. First, I wanted to share with you all the original post from Derek.
2: So I'm about to go talk about racism with a bunch of white therapists, and I'm a therapist myself. And the problem with talking about racism with a bunch of white therapists, most of them are female. But the problem is, is that they just get their feelings hurt so damn quickly. You can't say nothing. To a white therapist about their complicity in systemic racism through the use of the diagnostic criteria to unfairly label black people with diseases that are unnecessary like schizophrenia, and how they profit from it their entire lives write books on it. Can't talk about that with white folks white therapists without them getting their feelings hurt so I just want to let you know dear white therapist. Um, fuck
0: you. So rather than talking kind of about about good or bad advice, I want to kind of talk more about your thoughts hearing that and how it's kind of systemic and pervasive. I mean, also, if you want to talk about it being good advice, I'm not going to tell you guys what to talk about, obviously, but Jacob.
1: So keeping on the theme, I'm going to say good advice because I do think that often, especially as a white therapist myself, Mm -hmm. we don't want to feel uncomfortable, right? right? And when we are pointed out, the facts like, you know what, systemic historical systems of his- oppression that are still in place today in the therapy world serve to help us profit and can marginalize and oppress other people. It is something that needs to be called out and that we need to acknowledge our complicity in Mm -hmm. and deal with our own feelings of uncomfortableness with our participation, our complicity in that. And so I think it's good that he's calling that out. Yeah. And I think that when that does get called out to us, we shouldn't complain or push back. We should internalize that, understand that And be intentional about infusing that in our practice.
0: Yeah.
1: I think he's right on. I think that's important to call out. And I think it's a good voice to be magnified because oftentimes as therapists, we think we're the good guys Mm. when in fact, often we can do things that perpetuate Mm. racism and other systems of oppression within the therapy room. So good advice.
3: Absolutely woods. Yeah, I agree, good advice. And I think I mean he's kind of referencing this profitability from a really systemically problematic model of mental health care. I think it sounds like maybe he's in a training environment too if he's headed to a room full of like lots of therapists. I don't know that to be the, right. I don't know that to be accurate, but but I think that that's another way in which we perpetuate these really problematic, really racist kind of models of how we think about clients and therapy and how we think about families and how we think about diagnosis and how we think about treatment is through our training models when they don't do enough to kind of counter this directly and speak to this outside of the one required diversity class. Right. But I also think it makes our therapy rooms unsafe for people mm-hmm. of color. I think it creates a really s- problematic structure of how we then offer mental health services out in the world. So it's not just good advice, it's also kind of even bigger and more pervasive, I think, than he's even kind of naming in this brief video. I agree. I mean, certainly we could all name many experiences where we have witnessed these kinds of conversations and the reactions of white therapists being really problematic and really unhelpful and really defensive. Really and, defensive. Uh,
0: and and if, I think that defensiveness is, is really the, the issue. It's specifically the issue that he's he's talking yeah. about. Yeah. And forcing yourself to sit with that uncomfortableness and think about it, not talking, not offering your opinion, sit with it and think about what he is, he is saying, I think is, is really him and other others is really, really important. So um, the way kind of TikTok works is you can comment on these videos and then creator can then, respond v- via video to a lot of those comments. So this video of course as you all can imagine had a number of of responses, supportive but also defensive as as well. So one of the comments I'm going to share several of them and his his response to them. One of the comments centered around p- potentially deficits within specific trainings. So I mental health trainings. There's a, a number of different disciplines. There's social work. There's a LPC licensed professional counselor. There are psychologists. There are LMFT, which Derek is, and and we all are. Well, you guys are LMFTs as well. So. This comment focused on training and specifically the person commented, I am an LPC. I don't think it, it being racism, has anything to do with that, that being her LPC training. It has to do with being white. Most therapists are rich and it being from the the patriarchy. And this is his response to her saying that it's not the training of an LPC.
2: Hello, LPC. I'm an LMFT. So I think a lot of it does have to do with theory. And I mean no disrespect, but we have professional identities for a reason. LPCs are not taught systemic theory. You are not taught how to see things in the context. You are taught how to teach and help people with their intrapsychic issues, things that are going on with them, things that are going inside their character traits, to help them with their temperance, to help them with all these constructs that make it seem like the problem is within them. Systemic theory, Systemic therapy says that the whole is greater than the sum of its part. If I have a depressed child, that child is coming from a depressed family system. But an LPC might try to do individual therapy with a the child, which doesn't make sense. So what does it have to do with racism and the patriarchy? Well, everyone telling well Black people could make it if they would just pull themselves up for their bootstraps, if they would just, you know, deal with their issues in therapy. So that's why I think the licensure has a lot to do with it. It's professional identity.
0: So good or bad advice. Damn.
2: No, I'm gonna right? say, good it gives advice. Me
0: chills. Then, it gives me chills yeah. every time he says that. I'm like, yes, get it. But
1: yeah. I and there's a lot to unpack there, and I just want to touch on a couple of things. First, I do think that within our models and training practices, there is systemic ideas practices that promote oppression and racism. Like, mm-hmm. and that's mm. not just to LPCs in particular, but also in the field of family therapy or systemic therapy, which which i include my a part of, right there there are things within those that serve to promote racist ideas racist policies racist practices all of those types of things and i also think that it is key this is the other point i think he's bringing up to talk about this idea of promoting resilience in sick systems right this idea that he uses two great examples right if you're gonna have a kid who's depressed it's, if you don't change the context of depressed family system, that kid's probably not going to get better. And the same thing, because our society is oppressive, it's in racism is embedded in every structure in our society. Unless we shift that, right, just telling, you know, black folks to pull themselves up by their bootstraps is really just promoting resilience within a sick system. And it's not going to change any of the practices that serve to, you know, oppress and provide these structures where some folks get benefited and some folks don't. Mm -hmm. So I, I think that this is good advice that really we need to think about when we are trying to, you know, in the therapy room, if you're just thinking about the internal processes that are going on for a person, you are going to often set them up for failure, because the larger replicating systems of oppression are present. And I think it's incumbent, on all mental health providers to examine how they contribute to that and to actively work to dismantle those systems of oppression. So good advice.
0: Woods? Yeah,
3: I I think that is really powerfully said. (laughs) Good advice about the need to zoom out to focus not just on intrapsychic processes, but about the systems and the cultures and the relationships that we're embedded in. And I think there are probably many LPCs or licensed professional counselors, which they're just, they're trained. He's correct. They're trained differently who would not ascribe to this comment that has been posted. This woman does not represent all professional counselors. Mm, And also he's correct that marriage and family therapists are trained in thinking about the broader system and the context that people are embedded in. So what I think is, Really a great example of this is the research that we talked about today in terms of we could work with individual people to be talking with these African-American clients about how they cope with racism and how they cope with discrimination and what it does to their body and what it does to their health over time. But what this research pointed out was the impact that that racism can have on that person's partner, but also the effects that the support can have in that relationship at buffering that the impact of that racism. And so to ignore that and to only work with that one individual for these couples would be ignoring a huge resource and a huge source of support, but also another impact, another ripple effect of racism. And it's exactly why you need to think bigger picture and outside of an individual. And interestingly, I think this comment is talking about sort of poorly naming the quote, the patriarchy, the patriarchy is a a system. So really, I think not, I think he's doing a really powerful job of answering this criticism that is not not a very well thought-out criticism.
0: Right. And and I would what, what I particularly like about this comment is the importance of systems theory, but not just the family being one system, right? He's talking about yep, some, some nesting, right? The bigger picture, some nesting, the individual nested within the depressed family. But why is that family depressed? It's because it's Mm -mm. nested within this system Mm -hmm. of of oppression. So Mm -hmm. being able to recognize just not just that one system up, but also the larger system level has is is critical for helping people through their mental health and being Mm -hmm. being a therapist. So moving to the next comment, the next comment of his is in response that I wanted to talk about. It's, It's someone indicating that he is being sexist. The comment was criticizing him for pointing out that the therapists were female. I think that this is a perfect example of, the defensiveness that we talked about from the first line for line. They're not proving him wrong.
2: I mean, no disrespect to you, but I absolutely can blame you for assuming that I was sexist. This comment came on a video whenever I was talking about how you can't talk about racism with white therapists without them getting their feelings hurt. And I said in a very offhanded way that most of them are white women. That does not mean that I was being sexist. That means I was saying a statement of fact, but as a black man, you know what? Forget that part. You need to figure out what's going on with you. What is going on to where you looked at me making that statement and the first thing that you thought was I was being sexist, perhaps I was just saying something with such truth. And such conviction, not worried about whether or not it was going to hurt a white person's feeling. I said what was on my mind. And because you've never seen a black man do that before, your first instinct was to go to, well, he's being sexist. I will love the day when I'm able to speak freely and I don't have to worry about offending white people. So I I can't blame you for that. You could have given me the benefit of the doubt. You didn't have to assume that that was.
0: Thoughts? I don't want to say good or bad advice. I feel like that's placing a judgment upon that comment. Thoughts?
1: I really appreciate his response. I agree. Often when we get uncomfortable, we want a police tone. We mm. want to make it about the other person. We want to say, well, if you just changed the way you said that or how you did that, then I could hear it better. And that is right. is really, and he's calling that out right. like Impressive. That's really. It's yeah, oppressive. that's... That's really your own, your own stuff trying to shut him down, right? And I think that, you know, if you want to have a discussion with somebody, right, you don't go out and like, I, you know, like all of those bad faith arguments you're making, you're making a bad faith argument by saying, right. well, I'm not going to pay attention to anything you were saying. I'm just going to say, oh, well, guess what? You're sexist. So I don't have to listen to you, which is really about you not wanting to Mm -hmm. engage with your own anxiety, your own stress, which is indicating that, you know, you're a part of that oppressive system. Yeah. So great way to call that out.
3: Woods. Yeah, I really, I totally agree. And I'm not sure we've talked about tone policing specifically on attached before. Yeah. For those of you who are listening for whom that's kind of a new term, or maybe you've heard that thrown around a little bit and it feels like something, but you're not exactly sure what it means. I would probably describe it as a way in conversations where people are actively trying to dismiss what the other person is saying by criticizing the way in which they say it as having too much emotion Right. Mm. And so I can't your argument is something I can't hear because you're saying it in a way that's emotional. If only you could have packaged that a little bit differently then maybe people would listen to you is really problematic. In terms of when people have emotion and say things powerfully, which is what this gentleman is saying, what he said was important. And if you couldn't hear through the emotion, and I think this responder took it a a step further and then criticized him for something that is not remotely uh, a fit. And so kind of a really problematic defensive tactic. But I hope we're going to talk about, I I hope we talk about tone policing more in the future because I think mm, it is idea. something that happens in couples too. Sometimes that can be really undermine how communication can happen between people who are very likely to have important emotion.
0: Yeah. Right, exactly. So this next one is someone kind of asking for a little bit of education. Why Black people get diagnosed unnecessarily? If you remember the original <laughs> comment was, unnecessary or inappropriate diagnosis, particularly of Black people.
2: I absolutely can do that for you. I'm very excited. I'll talk about it on my YouTube channel, but I'll talk about it here specifically. The reason that Black people get diagnosed unnecessarily is because the diagnostic system is inherently itself a racist construct, right? Like how happy is too happy? How sad is too sad? And what happens is, is even if we were going to look at diagnosis in the best case scenario, where it is just a way for us to have a shared language about experiences that people go through, traumatic experiences. Experiences. Even if we're going to look at it like that, the reason that it is overdiagnosed or racist for black folks is because a teacher or a therapist will look at a black child experiencing depression and say it's ADHD, or they'll look at a child with behavioral problems and say that it's whatever it might be other than seeing a human being. And that's the problem. So the fact of the matter is it's the way the tool is used, not the tool itself. And the people who are using the tools are tools. <laughs>
0: I also kind of love that he's repeatedly ripping apart the DSM, which is the diagnostic criteria, which is kind of founded by the APA American Psychological Association and historically psychiatric, Psychiatric, sorry, Uh, thank you. And it has historically had to be created corrected because of wildly problematic diagnoses over the years such as hysteria for women homosexuality for gay and lesbian individuals so it it historically has had a lot of problems so i'm i'm particularly glad he's calling that out but that being said jacob
1: what are your thoughts so two two thoughts here first Uh i appreciate that he took the time to dismantle this but also Mm. we should be taking that on ourselves we shouldn't asking uh, people of color to educate us about why things are the way they are, right? I I mean, I totally agree with what he said there about the history of the DSM, the history of diagnosis, about how racist policies and ideas color how we diagnose people and color Mm -hmm. how we interact. But I also think that it's important for us as therapists to take the responsibility to educate ourselves. Right. It shouldn't be on the onus of, you know, on the, res- the responsibility given to black therapists or black researchers to teach us about racist policies, the racist history. As white therapists, we should be educating ourselves and then using that knowledge to inform our practice to the students we supervise or train or whatever context we might be in. So that's the first thought. Great, great ideas. Yeah. Also,
0: I agree. I completely agree. But I want to add to that. Anytime someone, a person of color is willing to educate me, I always greatly, greatly appreciate it as well. Because sometimes I don't always know what I don't know. And I can educate myself as much as possible. So sometimes when I even still am wrong, which happens, obviously will happen. I greatly appreciate when they're willing to do that. I gratitude.
1: Sorry. Yeah. No, no. Good. Thank you for adding that. I think the second point I want to emphasize is that we do engage you know he's pointing out how the dsm which is kind of like they literally called the manual right right. if you want to get reimbursement for um insurance to get paid as a practitioner you have to have a diagnostic code and inherently you know going back to the original comment you know in order to make money we have to engage with an oppressive structure Right. And if we don't see that, if we are not intentionally trying to push against and dismantle that, then we are participating. Right. If we just. And so I I really appreciate him pointing that out and talking about, like, this is why this is important to bring up, to acknowledge, because we need to change this, because we are profiting off of black and brown folks who we say, well, we're just helping them when, in fact, we're replicating racist structures. So again. Top to bottom, appreciate his comment.
3: Woods? Yeah, I think it is a really powerful way to talk about how diagnosis can be problematic rather than effective. The diagnostic manual he's talking about that helps us to categorized mental illness qualifies people's symptoms as in excess of what we might expect. So when you're thinking about something like post-traumatic stress disorder, you're thinking about whether those symptoms, those reactions to being easily startled, to having nightmares, to being really guarded, to having really kind of intense physiological reactions to fear, all of that should be in excess of what's expected. But for people embedded in really traumatic contexts for which that is not a single solitary trauma like a motor vehicle accident or something with a concrete start a concrete end, then that may be behavior that we should fully find expectable because they're keeping themselves safe. So the way of diagnosing and classifying mental illness is not systemic. It doesn't take into context. Right. It doesn't take into consideration context. It hardly even does that with bereavement and grief versus depression. Those things look very similar right. in how we diagnose. But then on top of that, you're handing out diagnoses that further perpetuate stigma We're not giving gentle adjustment disorders to people who are minority patients and people who are underserved and who are in poverty. We're giving really intense diagnoses that we're not already putting into context. So it's further perpetuating stigma because then they're carrying labels that suggest that maybe they're angry or aggressive or have personality disorders or anything that might make them seem very challenging to other systems. But then the, the other, the final piece that I want to point out is now you've given a problematic diagnosis that maybe doesn't take into Consideration context. And then we are giving you any mental health resources. Uh, (laughs) We're increasing awareness all the time of mental health is an issue, and mental health is a something that we need to do. And we need to be able to not have so much stigma about mental health. And also, we're not giving people any place to go to get their mental health needs met. Right. So that is how we perpetuate in a system like mental health care all of this problematic structure that perpetuates health disparities and when it comes to mental health there are there's no area of health that where there are more disparities and those disparities are always going to be carried more by people who have experienced disparities in other realms like african-american families so i think that's a it's a beautiful succinct way to say it and that's what occurred for me
0: Uh, Absolutely. And and building off of that and the comment about training, this next video that he did is kind of drilling in on specific techniques and how very common specific techniques in therapy can be very problematic as well. And, And this one in particular is cognitive behavioral therapy, which is very common.
2: You know, I was thinking the other day that if you wanted to write a manual, on how to gaslight minorities, you could come up with something that would look a lot like cognitive behavioral therapy. For example, let's say that I'm a black man and I feel like, uh, you know, the cops are out to get me. Um, you could tell me that I might be suffering from like overgeneralization or black and white thinking because not all cops are out to get me. And then you start to see how like, uh, you know, If I went to the right psychiatrist and I told them that I'm a little paranoid about this experience because of the legacy of systemic racism and the DSM, the psychiatrist might think that that's evidence of schizophrenia, which, um, yeah, it's all broke.
0: So he was listing some very specific techniques linked to cognitive behavioral therapy. Thoughts on what he said?
2: I
1: love that example, not in the fact that it's like, I love that it happens, but it points out. Right. So I didn't think well. that's what
0: you were saying, yeah,
1: Jacob. Yeah, I wanted to make sure that's clear. Like that example <laughs> points out in such a brief and succinct way how therapy can be used to gaslight individuals who are experiencing systems of oppression in their lives, right? You know, yeah, you could say to somebody, you know, that's over a generalization because not all cops are out to get you, but that fear. Yeah, is real, and by minimizing it and get and like totally discounting the largest systemic factors that are in play is so undermining, and yet happens frequently in mental health and in research. More of my experience um, deals with LGBTQ individuals, and often they'll talk about like you know trans folks you know have higher rates of suicide, and so we've got to really you know drill down and figure out what. Emotion regulation issues are going on to that lead trans folks to have higher rates of suicide. And I always have to stop and say, no, like, it's not a problem with emotion regulation. It's a problem of a larger system that serves to marginalize and oppress yes. people with with different identities. And so if we are focusing on how to improve emotion regulation, you are setting people up for failure. And I love that he's pointed that out specifically for cognitive behavioral therapy, which is the most practiced form of therapy anywhere. It's the most one that every therapist is going to get at least some sort of training on. And if we are not aware of how Mm -hmm. these tools can be used to further replicate systems of oppression, then we are using them very poorly.
0: Yeah. Fantastic. Woods?
3: Yeah, I really agree. CBT is not my preferred approach. I think it is really, again, he described earlier, this focus on intrapsychic process, which can be really important. But I think it really kind of divides even that up into what it considers to be manageable chunks that are easily researched. And I don't think it considers context very well. There is a researcher at a University of Michigan who we may have talked about in last season, Rihanna Elise Anderson. She does some incredible work With understanding racial socialization and how that process happens in African American families. And She recently published a paper and she might not be first author. So I apologize if that's not accurate. We can link that piece to this episode also, but she did this really great paper recently that builds in the process of racial socialization into trauma-focused cognitive behavioral therapy. Mm. So it's an evidence-based brief approach to supporting young people in coping with a trauma and how to learn how to respond to that physiological dysregulation. That happens, how to process their emotions and their worry thoughts, etc. But for young people who experience a racially charged traumatic event, she has written a paper recently about building in a process of racial socialization to make that evidence based treatment more tailored to the population that they're working with that helps build in considerations of culture and values that helps to cope with racism and discrimination. So Mm -hmm. it is not that those, techniques in and of themselves are necessarily problematic. Again, I think how it's how it's applied and that we can think about how to tailor and adapt the approaches that we have, if not dismantle entirely and, and rebuild back in, in other more sensitive ways. But I think he makes a really, really important point about we need to consider the clients who are in front of us and creating evidence-based treatments for people who are
0: embedded in oppressive structures. Yes, I I like that a lot. The last comment I want to highlight is someone paraphrasing Derek's original comment more aggressively, much more aggressively than he actually said it and why that's problematic. This one I I wanted to highlight because it's particularly important because as white allies, we need to learn how to appropriately carry messages forward and concerns of our black colleagues forward accurately and the consequences of not doing that well. When you were saying that white women can be heinous, racist bitches and they don't make good therapists for people of
2: color. First off, I just want to make it really clear. Please don't paraphrase me like that. I did not say that white women can be heinous, racist bitches. I would never use the word bitch to refer to a woman like that. That's just you. I just I would not do that. So please make sure that you paraphrase me correctly, because that has consequences. It's because what's going to happen is the way that systemic racism works. People are going to see your video and they are going to get mad at me. They're not going to take the time to do the research. They're going to get mad. They're going to assume that I said exactly what it is that you just said. Now, I know that what I said in my video has consequences, but it's been taken out of context. I'm speaking within the spaces where I'm having an academic discussion with other therapists. That is what happens. That is the final move that they use when they don't want to confront it. It happens. It's just true. So that's true. We're- so
0: uh, I also think that he handled that uh, amazingly well. I can I would be livid if someone paraphrased me so uh, aggressively and out of out of context. And I'm sure it happens to him a lot, which is why he's probably practiced and saying it so well. But I, I want to think about our own selves and how we kind of bring forward and highlight voices from our colleagues of color, um, how, how to do that effectively and kind of what you took away from his message from that if that's okay
1: yeah so the first part of i i I love that he pointed out the process of because this commenter didn't want to engage with the argument because she felt uncomfortable Mm -hmm. she shifted the argument Mm. right she shifted it to this is what you said look how mean you're being when in fact we listened to the comment he didn't say that at all right right it's a manifestation of how she felt about what he said Right. And I really think he's done an excellent job of pointing that out and talking about how that is used just to replicate systemic oppression. Right. It's just used to say he was angry, so we shouldn't listen to him. Right. Patricia, you bring up another great aspect of this, too, is that as people who are trying to be allies, how we paraphrase and bring up the ideas of those researchers, colleagues, friends, who are people of color is important. And we need to be thoughtful, intentional about how we do, because often we can co-opt their ideas as our own, right? which is not as bad as well, maybe as bad, but is, you know, like we don't feel that it's as bad as saying, oh, well, you said this as like you called women, you know, heinous, angry bitches, which he didn't. But it can be as bad as replicating systemic racism because we are not providing credit for where the idea actually came from. So I do appreciate that point of if we want to be allies, we need to be very thoughtful about who we are and how we are bringing up these ideas and who we are giving credit to these ideas and how we are expressing them in the broader community. So I hope I get to meet this gentleman at a conference sometime and appreciate what he's doing because Mm -hmm. really cool, really great stuff.
3: Yeah, I think what he's commenting on really powerfully is an abuse of power. Mm. Oh, yeah. She has a different kind of platform as a young white woman. And she is, as Jacob described, not just tone policing, she's inventing a new message that that then she ascribes to him that's really problematic. And so I think your question, Patricia, was how to how to serve as helpful, powerful allies uh, that are supportive of a really important mission versus what you're seeing here, which is a really problematic use mm-hmm. of power that, left unchecked, would have the effect that he's describing in terms of uh, people with them then come at him in a way that's really scary and threatening and problematic, and certainly doesn't advance the conversation that he was suggesting is important to have. So I think there's always a decision about whether we use power for good or use it to continue these really problematic structures that he's commenting on it in the first place. And I think to be an ally, you have to be able
0: to use that power for good rather than be racist. Absolutely. For more wisdom from Derek, he has a YouTube page, as he kind of alluded to, it's the situational therapist. So if you just cool. go to YouTube, type in the situational therapist, he has some excellent videos there. So I recommend going and checking out his, both his YouTube page. And if you happen to be hip and cool and on TikTok, like me, also follow him on TikTok as well.
3: I like how you had to proceed all of this by explaining to Jacob and I how TikTok works. Yeah. Cause I
1: honestly have no idea how it works. So I will definitely <laughs> (laughs) go check it, check out YouTube. Uh, YouTube, I don't know if I'm I'm ready to wade into the TikTok waters yet. I feel like I'm a little, I'm not that hip yet.
0: We'll get you there, Jacob. I know
1: I'm working on my hipness.
0: (laughs) And when you say it like that, I believe (laughs) it. You prove it. (laughs) Your students Uh, are so lucky. (laughs) As always, thank you for listening to Attached. Remember, call us, email us, or get at us on all those social medias about relationship advice you've received that you're wondering whether to follow or pass on. We cannot wait to talk about it.